So I think what will get China to its goal is, is, is not necessarily building a lot more wind and solar. That, of course, would help. But actually, what really moves the needle in terms of emissions for hitting this 2030 peak emissions goal is really just having a more efficient economy. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week, we welcome back Justin Wu for his views on the key issues to watch across Asia this year. Justin is the head of Asia Pacific at Bloomberg NEF, and he is joined by my colleague Lachlan Carey. In the first half of the episode, Justin and Lachlan focus on China. They dive into what the U.S.-China relations on climate might look like under the Biden administration and whether we may see a healthy level of competition across the clean energy space. They then turn to new carbon-neutral policy announcements in Japan and Korea and the surrounding political dynamics in both countries. Next up is the coal phase-outs and COVID recovery efforts in Southeast Asia, especially in Vietnam and Indonesia. They then look at India's climate and clean energy outlook and its recovery plans, before closing with a stop in Australia and its focus on developing a technology-forward climate plan. Here's Lachlan to get the conversation started. Thanks for joining us again, Justin. Uh, this is our first time together on the podcast, so I wanted to really use the opportunity to today to take a bit of a tour around the Asia-Pacific region, you know, hopefully talk a little bit about China, about India, Japan, Korea, and, and maybe even get to my, my home country of, of Australia. So let's let's see how we go. I managed to listen to your podcast with uh, Sarah from this time last year, and uh, unsurprisingly, one year later, a pandemic, a US election, and a, a Chinese carbon neutrality target later, we're in a pretty, pretty different global context. Uh, and I think it's safe to say, you know, one of the biggest changes is the Biden administration, which both wants to be a global leader on uh, on climate efforts, but also I think it wants to take a, a harder line approach to perhaps what was the case under, for instance, the, the Obama administration. Uh, I read with interest a, a piece you published in December last year where you described that Biden has a, a narrow path forward in negotiating the tension between accelerating decarbonisation on the one hand and negotiating the, these trade disputes on the others. So I guess I was just wondering if you could describe for us a little bit what you think that narrow path might look like and, and importantly, what it, what it has to look like. What, what are the stakes here of, uh, of getting this wrong? Sure, Lankan. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. It's really great to be back. And, and really, what a, what a difference a year makes. I think last time I joined uh, the Energy 360 podcast, the U.S.-China has just signed its first uh, phase one trade well, phase one trade deal. Um, so that was sort of the, the talk of the town at, at that point. Um, but now, obviously, a year later, as you correctly mentioned, a lot of things have changed uh, in the world and, and also uh, in, the, in the realm of climate as well. I think it's, um, I mean, obviously, I, the, the U.S.-China relationship sort of hangs quite, um, uh, well, quite heavily in everybody's minds when, when we talk about climate. Um, and, and everybody's watching this very, very closely. So I was, you know, I think a lot of us were quite uh, sort of interested to see uh, John Kerry's um, remarks, I think, about two weeks ago um, around the, the, the Davos, uh, World Economic Forum in Davos, virtual Davos, I should say. And, and I think the two things that struck me when I saw that was that um, one is that it, it seems like the tone of the new Biden administration on China uh, will remain, at least for now, similar to what it was before from the uh, Trump administration. In other words, 
tough on certain areas, um, a lot of areas. Um, and uh, on climate, it seems like that there is a narrow window for collaboration or for dialogue. But on the other hand, um, uh, you know, Kerry, I think, mentioned uh, two things that he would like China to uh, change or at least to put some pressure on China. Uh, one is the carbon neutrality pledge. So China's carbon neutrality pledge is, is for 2060 versus those of most other countries, which is 2050. So that 10-year difference is, you know, become an issue that people are now highlighting. Uh, and the second point that he mentioned is around the coal financing. So indeed, China does uh, still building coal power, fire power plants at home, even though that's uh, now being slowed down and there's sort of increasing scrutiny domestically in China about that. But of course, still building coal fire power plants overseas, particularly in Southeast Asia or Central Asia along a lot of the, the so-called Belt and Road countries. So those are two areas which were you know, identified by uh, Special Envoy Kerry about uh, you know, things that China needs to address. So I think you could probably look at that as half empty or half full. I, I think for people who think uh, half full, they might say, well, okay, that doesn't completely close the door on collaboration. You know, climate is still this one issue that perhaps collaboration or, or um, between the U.S. and China, if not at the federal government level, um, if that doesn't quite happen on the federal government level, it could still happen in sub, you know, subnational between states and cities and provinces, et cetera, or in the private sector. So there's still hope for all that to continue. Uh, but then, of course, there is the, the half-empty or the more pessimistic group, which might say, well, the tone is really, hasn't really changed much. So what are we, what are we going to see? So, so I don't know. I mean, one thing I'll say is that I, I think ahead of COP26 uh, in November, uh, we're going to see a lot of statements from various countries on climate. And I think there is going to be a little bit of uh, different countries trying to outdo each other, so becoming a bit more aggressive, which is, of course, is a, is a great thing. I, I think that's what we want to see, this sort of normative shift. And I think we're going to see sort of countries calling each other out for not doing more. So you know, if this means that actually there's a, we see sort of stronger action from China or we see a response, or in turn that sort of comes back and leads to a stronger response from the U.S. administration and the U.S. decides to do more, I think that could be a good thing, right? So a positive feedback loop uh, in terms of being more ambitious, uh, despite the sort of tough tone at the beginning. Um, so still early days, but we'll see at least this conversation is is being had and at least now we have climate as a, uh, as a topic of discussion in foreign policy uh, that we probably didn't have before just a few months ago. Yeah, it certainly looks like it's going to be a, a key thing throughout 2021. And as you say, you know, we have COP26 at the, the end of the year, but between now and then there are any number of multilateral forums, starting with the Earth Day Summit that the Biden administration has announced in April. Uh, we've got various G20 summits and, and all the rest of it. And it, it looks like one way in which the Chinese administration and Biden administration are hoping to sort of de-link the tensions in the relationship from progress on climate is through these multilateral forums. I noted with uh, interest and amusement uh, Xi Jinping's speech at the Davos Forum called Let the Torch of Multilateralism Light Up Humanity's Way Forward. So I think the um, multilateralism uh, seems to be a priority for, for him uh, and it the G20, they're, they're certainly looking at prioritizing a green recovery amongst other 
sort of initiatives. So do you expect there to be much progress in these forums? You know, is, is a green recovery going to make a difference when it comes to climate? How can countries move beyond, you know, net zero targets and pledges and, and start to, to make real progress towards um, serious climate action in, in these sorts of um, forums? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I guess I am a, an optimist. Um, I think these additional opportunities to talk throughout the year between countries uh, is a good thing. That usually means that it is going to be more opportunities to potentially make more pledges, to work out wrinkles, uh, to sort of talk about the, the difficult topics around climate policy and decarbonization uh, before you get to the you know, COP26. I think most people would say that actually by the time you get to COP26, it's all sort of said and done, right? So all policy statements or all positions are, are basically set. In that point, it's more just reading it out in an in international forum. I mean, look, I, I think in the case of China, there's sort of two things I'll, I'll say. One is that um, for the moment, uh, it, it feels, and probably rightly so, that it has a bit of a, uh, it's ahead of the U.S. It has, a, it has so-called the moral high ground when it comes to this. It has a carbon neutrality pledge um, that, you know, as, as you say, uh, Xi Jinping just reiterated recently. You know, it is talking the language of multilateralism and, and sort of helping, you know, wanting to help other countries follow a similar path. So in some ways, China, you know, has the sort of the moral high ground, if you will, when it comes to this. Um, and I think all eyes are now, of course, waiting for what the Biden administration will do, right? Will the U.S. go ahead with a very ambitious target of some sort, right? So the things that Biden said during the campaign, for instance, phasing out fossil fuels, uh, fossil fuel power generation in the U.S. by 2035, or, or having a net zero uh, emissions goal for the U.S. by 2050. You know, are these more ambitious things going to come about uh, in the U.S.? Which I think will be challenging, but, but there might be, you know, some pressure for the Biden administration to, to say something ambitious like that ahead of, uh, ahead of COP26. The second thing is obviously, you know, China kind of has its own timeline. Um, and right now, all eyes are on this uh, 14-5-year plan, which is the macroeconomic plan, if you will, that will uh, guide the next five years. Um, so we're expecting to see that at some, come out at some point in March, following the government meetings in, in Beijing. And within it, we're expecting to see uh, probably some more specific goals around um, emissions and energy policy, renewable energy policy, all these things, right? So there's a lot more details uh, that will stem from this uh, and also subsequent plans that come out of this. We'll, we'll see more details. One other thing I'll just point out is that there is a near-term plan. So a lot of people remember the 2060 uh, net zero uh, pledge that China made, but there's an also, also another near-term goal that was reiterated with this announcement which is the peaking of emissions by 2030 uh, in, in China. And this was actually, actually first came out before the Paris Agreement between uh, former President Obama and, and President Xi Jinping back in 2015. So at that point, China had said, we're going to peak emissions around 2030. And that was reiterated again with this 2060 pledge. And we expect that probably to come out again around the 14 five-year plan. I think most observers, including myself, we, we sort of agree that China will reach this 2030 uh, peaking goal. It will be difficult um, because obviously the, the uh, post-COVID uh, recovery means that uh, in the near term, you, you're probably going to have more 
economic activity, or at least the government in China and elsewhere, wants to see more economic activity come back, and that's going to be more energy consumption. So it might be derailed a little bit in the near term, but largely I th- I think that China will be on track to hit this goal. So that would be interesting to see、uh, this sort of near term goal. Uh, happen, and then of course all the other details that come along with this fourteen、uh, five year plan. Well, you've brought a, a bunch up there that I want to want to get into, but for the moment I just want to stick with the the twenty sixty target because, as you say, I think it's really shifted the the international landscape and and given China the the sort of rhetorical or moral high ground for at least a little while, and arguably has has induced a number of other countries to to announce you know net zero targets of their own. But what about at home? You know, have you have you seen evidence of any、uh, significant policy changes, or, or you know, that have actually come about on the ground in China, or is this sort of smacking a label on、uh, an existing trend? You know, as you say, the twenty thirty peak had already been announced.、Um, the five year plan process was you know already well underway. So, how much of the the domestic you know、uh, policy apparatus really had to shift? Uh, and has shifted in in the wake of、uh, of this announcement. Sure, I, th- I think it's very significant because I think before China made this announcement,、uh, you know, at, at least from from our perspective here, when we work with companies across Asia, you know, we used to say that the, the whole net zero idea is very much a something that's from Europe, right? European countries were championing it.、Uh, it seemed in some cases almost a fantasy for a lot of countries or companies in Asia. But when China announced this, it really changed、uh, quite a bit, right? It kind of changed everybody's perception of what is possible. Now, I think it, it, China is significant for more than one reason when it comes to this kind of pledge. One is obviously that it's the world's largest emitter of, of greenhouse gases. You know,、um, almost thirty percent or so of of carbon emissions in the world comes from China. The second point, probably more significant, is that. China is still a developing country. I don't say that you know to toe the toe the government line. What that means is actually that if you look at the amount of emissions that,、uh, in terms of the growth of emissions every year, China is actually quite、uh, it's still quite significant. So every year China is emitting more and more, and then on a、uh, emissions per GDP level, it's still extremely high. It's about three three to four times that of、uh, Japan, for instance. So by those measures, it means that this is a country that's still making a pledge to peak its emissions within ten years and to become net zero in forty years, but it's still growing at a very fast clip in terms of new adding new emissions.、Um, so it kind of you know sweeps the argument under from a lot of developing countries about well you know this is this is something for rich countries that have already peaked right. So you know when Japan made the pledge, it's also. Uh, very significant, obviously being the third largest economy in the world and being a, a fairly large emitter itself. But if you look at、uh, stats of Japan, it's already a very efficient, energy efficient economy.、Um, it's already peaked in terms of population, in some ways, in terms of economic growth in some areas. So its emissions trajectory, like other developed countries in Europe, is already on a downward trend. So you can imagine that, yeah, it's a matter of time before it hits net zero. But that's not the case for for China because it's still on an upward trend.、Um, so I think that's actually very a very significant point that we have to remember. And then just just the other point you mentioned about whether there's anything on the ground. I think it it has shifted、uh, the perception of companies and investors. 
uh, a lot on this, right? So you you will have companies, whether they're Chinese companies or foreign companies with operations in China or other companies in the region, they now have to think about this a little bit and say, well, there's a net zero goal. What does that mean for the business? Should we set one as well? And you see that actually a number of Chinese companies have come out uh, with certain net zero pledges or or um, or intentions. There is you know there's that effect on the private sector and on on business as well, which which is also significant. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think your point about China still being a developing country is really important, right? And that it decarbonizing would be sort of unprecedented at the stage of of development and and really really sets a a sort of new standard but you know one of the phrases that started to come up a lot in the chinese sort of authorities rhetoric is this notion of dual circulation and i think this is something that i've really sort of locked onto as a as an indication of uh, sort of priorities in the in the administration and i think there are sort of two ways that i think this is potentially really important when it comes to climate on the one hand I think dual circulation means relying more on domestic production to service domestic consumption. So a move away from fossil fuel imports uh, and sort of really addressing the energy security problem. But then dual circulation, I think, also means a sort of commitment to this notion of rebalancing away from the carbon intensive heavy industry and and sort of export led sectors and towards domestic consumption. And so I guess my question is, how do you see the the five-year plan interacting with this notion of, of dual circulation. How important do you think that is to sort of reorienting the Chinese growth model in order to achieve these uh, decarbonization targets? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good point on, on dual uh, circulation. Um, some ways not, not surprising. Um, I think, again, there's, there's maybe two ways to think about it. One is that if you actually look at the energy uh, security situation in China, it's worsened significantly over the last couple of years. And by that, what I mean is the amount of oil and gas, fossil fuels that China imports has been increasing. So at this point, China's increasing more oil on a total basis than the U.S. has ever imported. Um, so we, we always think that in the U.S. we import a lot of oil, uh, but actually China now is more, much more reliant on imports of oil. And also natural gas, um, I think we're close to 45% of the gas consumed in China is being imported, which is also the highest it's ever been and, and more than what the government wants. So if you take a 10-year view of this, the U.S. has had a shale gas revolution and it's become really you know, energy independent and a net exporter of fossil fuels. Uh, China's basically gone the other way um, and importing more and more and much more reliant on imports. So I think in, in this context... Uh, even without a trade war or, or hostile rhetoric, uh, you know, I think the Chinese government would, would probably come up with something like this and say, actually, we need to rethink about consumption. And then, of course, the other half of it is uh, sort of you know, increasing domestic consumption. Probably it means two things. One is, frankly, you know, uh, on the trade side, of course, increasing domestic consumption w- would help you if overseas markets become unavailable or there's increasingly uh, hostility towards Chinese goods, etc., so that's that's probably from an economic perspective a good thing to to think about, and then you know secondly of course it's about a market for all of its goods right so it is about sort of all the solar panels and wind turbines or batteries manufactured in China, a lot of these companies would love to have overseas, access to all overseas markets and sell these goods, um, but the government says well you know I you know 
you should focus domestically as well. You should sort of try to sell these goods domestically. So yeah, I think we will see, we will probably see aspects of this in the five-year plan and in the subsequent government planning. You know, one other thing maybe attached to this is also just having a more efficient domestic economy as well. So I think what will get China to its goal is, is, is not necessarily building a lot more wind and solar. That, of course, would help. But actually, what really moves the needle in terms of emissions or hitting this 2030 peak emissions goal is really just having a more efficient economy. <clears throat> Excuse me. So one that relies a lot less on heavy industry and emissions, one that re- relies a bit more on high tech and consumption, et cetera, services. Um, so those are things that, that would sort of have uh, a, a greater impact on emissions in the economy. I think that's right. The The problem, however, is that doesn't seem to be what China's done in its response to COVID-19 and, and the economic impacts of that, right? I mean, permitting for new coal power plants accelerated immediately. I think more permits were handed out in the first half of 2020 than all of 2018 and, and 2019. So what evidence do we see that China is sort of actually moving from the this sort of carbon intensive growth model uh, to, as you say, a more efficient uh, sort of growth trajectory going forward? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely this tension uh, in China, right? So, of course, there's a, the thought that, okay, well, to get the economy back and running again, we may need to, we probably need to stimulate the economy, and that's going to lead to higher emissions and higher energy consumption in the near term. But then it's going to sort of swing back. So there is always this, there's still 10 years to 2030, yeah, we can, you know, we can sacrifice a few years of high growth, high emissions, and then bring bring it back. You know, I, I would say that's problematic on a number of fronts on on the climate side, but we'll we'll get into that for the moment. But you know, this view is uh, not only in China, but in a lot of other places about sort of you can you can emit now and then sort of bring things back later. But look, I mean, the other thing uh, that maybe is a little more positive is that if you look at some of the stimulus measures. Uh, that the Chinese government has put through, um, the ones now are a lot more modest and a lot less focused on heavy industry than the one that, say, followed the global financial crisis back in uh, 2009, 2008, 2009, for instance. So back then there was a lot of stimulus money was put in construction, heavy industry, infrastructure, etc., and that resulted in quite a bit of growth in those years, but also a huge surge in emissions that culminated in high levels of air pollution across cities in China at that, at that point. Now it's a lot more modest, just the headline numbers are lower in terms of the stimulus. They're still focused on infrastructure, but it's, it's a bit more around you know, trains or, or urban subways uh, and 5G networks, <laughs> things like that. So potentially the things that they're focusing on are a lot less energy intensive. So I think there is a bit of a, a change in, in tone. Um, and frankly, you know, the, the Chinese economy is not growing the, at the same speed as it used to, right? It's, things are, are a bit different from the, what they were 10 years ago. And every year, if you look at the composition of the economy, you know, the, the section that is sort of services grows a bit more relative to heavy industries. Heavy industry is still huge in terms of the portion of GDP, but it shrinks a little bit every year. So it is gradually moving that direction. Um, probably not fast enough to reach net zero at this point by 2060, but at least it's shifting, slowly shifting in, the, in that direction. Do you think there'll be a GDP growth target in the, the upcoming five-year plan, or 
you know, is this, I think they call it a move from high quantity to high quality growth. Uh, you know, is, is that going to be the order of the day? You know, I think for now, there is no, uh, there is no GDP target announced in the five-year plan, uh, which a lot of people have, have highlighted. Probably unlikely. I mean, it's going to be a guess on my side on that, but it, probably unlikely that there will be a GDP uh, target. I think we, we look at our own forecast. Uh, I think the numbers were about two, you know, two, 2.3% GDP growth in 2020. Uh, things may surge in 2021 as with a recovery, but then it kind of flattens back down again for, for the next couple of years. I think part of the challenge from a Chinese policymaker's perspective of setting a GDP target uh, is this concept I mentioned earlier about the energy consumption to GDP uh, ratio in in China? So what I what I mean by that is basically it's if you set a number for GDP, it, it tends to imply a certain amount of energy consumption and growth. Um, and I think I think that part is still a little bit un, uncertain for Chinese policymakers, right? So the ratio of uh, the amount of GDP per uh, and the amount of some energy consumption. You know, can you bring that down? Can you kind of decouple that a little bit? And I think there is probably a lack of confidence in, in that at the moment. Um, so setting a GDP target might imply that you have a license to, to do more and therefore sort of use more energy and use more emissions. So maybe it's trying to avoid a sort of a signal like that until it's more, more clear. We still might see some goals on GDP in subsequent plans or maybe there's mentions and statements. But clearly, I, you know, I, I think that's a little bit less likely this time. And maybe not surprising, I mean, there is an emphasis on uh, the whole thing about emphasizing higher uh, value growth and, and everything else means that there's you know, less of a focus and obsession on, on a top-line GDP uh, number, uh, per se. Yeah, that seems really important to me. It, it, it feels very difficult for uh, Chinese leadership to focus on goals like rebalancing or um, dual circulation uh, if it's still having to hit these these extremely ambitious uh, GDP growth targets. But to move away from the sort of macro side for a second, you know, you've noted in the past that you think power market reform in China is going to be critical to its ability to decarbonize. And for, you know, our, our listeners who, who may not keep up to date on, on this, you know, what progress has there been in China on its on its power market reform and, and sort of what are you watching uh, at the moment to see, you know, kind of read the tea leaves of, of what's going to happen next uh, next there? Yeah, I, I think the biggest thing on this here is, you know, how would renewable energy projects be paid? I mean, the two big shifts in power market reform is, is generally moving away from government set prices uh, given to power plants to something a bit more closer to a market, uh, not entirely market driven, but, you know, a bit more market driven and then specifically sort of how that impacts uh, solar and wind projects. So for some of your listeners if they're following the news, you know, you might have heard that China announced a very large number of solar and wind projects that were especially wind projects were built in 2020, which surprised everybody. Uh, We think that actually the reason for that might be that some projects that weren't fully built uh, got counted. So maybe some turbines that were uh, essentially erected, but they got counted anyway, even before the project was completed. Uh, but nevertheless, there is a, a big pipeline of projects. Um, and part of the reason that have happened is, is maybe to get some of those projects counted into the subsidies or feed-in tariffs uh, before they're, they're fully phased out. Um, so this is sort of the year, supposedly, that 
see the end of um, these feed-in feed-in premiums or subsidies given to a lot of these wind and solar projects, and then uh, moving on, you have so-called subsidy-free projects that are uh, going to be uh, paid a lot lower or with different mechanisms. So I think the uh, if we're going to sort of look at the indicators, we have to see how these projects are going to be paid, um, whether you still have a pipeline of projects following uh, the removal of a lot of these subsidies, and uh, whether you know these projects are viable, can you be viable or not? Um, seems like they will be. Um, of course, I think everybody will complain about it, but never, nevertheless, it will continue. So my, you know there might be a bit of a disruption in the near term, but the pipeline seems to be quite strong after that. And then the second one is to see what happens to coal power projects uh, as a result of these market reforms. So do uh, does the grid or does the power system make more room for renewable energy as a result of reforms? Um, you know, we know that coal power projects have been on a downward trend recently in terms of the amount of electricity, even though new projects are being built, the amount of electricity they generate or their capacity factors are, are falling. So they're being gradually squeezed out by uh, renewable energy or other sources. So what happens to them, right? So um, there are arguments from some people to say that uh, there should be a capacity payment for coal power plants. What that means is they should just be paid to exist. Um, there's a big debate in in you know clean energy about capa- you know, whether capacity payments and things like that work. But people say, well, you need a you need a sort of a stable uh, load in the grid. So pay these projects just to be there, use them to balance renewable energy. That's hard to predict. Uh, so there's a there's a a bit of a debate over that as well. So what happens to these coal projects in in this mix? Uh, is a is a question as well. Overall, I would say that um, you know maybe not to get too much in the weeds, but there is definitely progress on power market reform. It's it's moving in the direction that you know at least the the policymakers have been saying. But it's slow and it's definitely not easy and straightforward. And it's moving at different clips across different provinces as well. Um, so it's very much still a, a mix of, of of different things at the moment. And we'll have to watch it very closely because clearly it's getting that right as part of the solution. So speaking of coal uh, power phase out, I, I want to change tack slightly and, and talk about Japan, who, uh, as you mentioned, have also announced a net zero target. And my understanding is that this year they're due for their own 2030 energy plan at some point. And um, the the pressure is certainly on them to, to announce a more ambitious coal phase out than, than they've done in the past. So I'm interested, A, in uh, you know, what your expectations are of that, that energy plan and, and B, sort of the politics around climate ambition in Japan. You know, how much of this net zero target was driven by the Chinese announcement versus domestic pressures or, or, or just the, the economics uh, in, in renewable energy? Yeah, great, great question. So we're, we are expecting Japan to first of all, uh, officially legislate its net zero goal. So turn that into from a, just a government announcement into law. So that'll be yeah, interesting to see how that comes about. And then as you correctly mentioned, the a revision of its basic energy policy. Um, so one of the headlines from that is we expect a higher target for renewable energy in 2030. Uh, right now, I think it's something around 22 to 24% renewable energy uh, electricity generation that might get revised upwards to 30 or 40 percent, uh, which, you know, when, when we look at it, our team here in Tokyo believes that's pretty easy to, to hit. 
uh, you know, it might be somewhere in the mid-30s that, uh, for renewable energy in Japan by 2030. Uh, and part of it is just, you know, power demand is not growing that fast and you have more renewable energy built, so naturally that will sort of help hit that goal. To your question about sort of how that came about and some of the politics around it, uh, it's a really good question. You know, I think before net zero was announced in China and then sort of in Japan shortly after that, Japanese companies were already very uh, sort of forward-thinking in terms of uh, sustainability, corporate sustainability. Um, none had at that point announced a net zero goal, but many were saying that um, we wanted to use 100% renewable energy in operations. We needed to reduce emissions by X amount. So on the corporate level, actually, Japan was was a lot more forward-thinking, or Japanese companies were at least forward-thinking compared to others in Asia. Uh, and I think a lot of that came about in the uh, sort of G20 meeting in 2019 o- Osaka. Um, so following that, there was a, a surge of corporate sort of sustainability announcements. But once nationally you make that goal, it, of course, makes everything official. And even, I think, after that, we've seen now Japanese companies announcing net zero goals uh, in addition to other sustainability pledges. So it's definitely spurred that forward. And funny enough, I think even compared to let's say, neighboring Korea or, or China, for that matter, I think there is um, a, a sort of broad political consensus and public acceptance of net zero in Japan. So generally on that part, it's, it's, less, uh, it's less sort of contentious. Um, Korea, may, maybe we talk about that later, is actually a little bit different on the political side. But in Japan, definitely there is uh, agreement towards that. One other thing I'll say about Japan, and it's, it's often interesting to compare, you know, the, the three Northeast Asian countries on sort of net zero. And as I mentioned also before, if you look at just the, the, the structure of the economy, Japan probably is the leader at the moment because it has the lowest CO2 emissions per unit of GDP. It has declining energy demand. It generally has a, a clean economy as it is, right? So almost uh, 30% of the cars it sells are a hybrid vehicles, for instance. So it's already the cleanest of the three, if you will, and it's on a downward trajectory. But, you know, net zero is, is we have to remember, is, is no margin for error. It's not just clean. You have to get to zero, right? The question there is that, you know, because it's already so clean, uh, Japan is already a, a, such a clean economy, um, what does it take to get to zero? And one example is that actually, uh, some would argue that, for instance, having a lot of hybrid uh, vehicles right now that run on gasoline and electricity, you know, like the Toyota Prius, for instance, in the long run might be a disadvantage towards electrification, right? So China, for instance, has relatively a very dirtier, if you will, um, uh, car fleet, uh, but it's, you know, it's essentially using a lot of electric, it's deploying electric vehicles using batteries. So it may, you know, jump over in terms, it might skip over hybrids and go straight for actually this net zero uh, solution. So, you know, sometimes being sort of first now may not actually result in being first later on. So I think that's just an interesting dynamic to to watch when you compare these countries. Um, having the cleanest economy now, but means that, you know, adoption of newer technologies might be slower in some cases. But we'll see. I, I think it's still very early days. Um, and of course, I think for, for Japan as well as China, it's still thinking a bit more towards what to do by 2030. And, and it doesn't have a pathway yet to 2050 or 2060. So it doesn't see exactly how it could get there, but more focus on the near term at the moment. 
yeah, a good one to watch. Uh, you you brought up Korea, so I'd I'd like to do the same. And I think uh, Korea, of course, raised some eyebrows by announcing Asia's first Green New Deal ahead of its um, federal election uh, in April, I believe, which which the president won hand, handily. I, I don't follow Korean politics to know how much of that was due to the the Green New Deal or not. But I guess I'm interested in you know what are the key features of this plan and you know for most of our listeners who, who will be a American, how much does it share with the, the Green New Deal plan that's been advocated for by, you know, AOC and sort of more progressive uh, American political figures? Yeah, I think broadly it's, it's less ambitious than the American Green New Deal, if I can say that. So, so specifically the Korean one is a five-year, uh, about $133 billion U.S. dollar post-COVID spending package. Uh, so the green element is maybe, uh, you know, about 60 billion of, of that is sort of the green element. And then there's the 50 billion for digital technologies. Uh, and then the remainder is really is a bit more um, uh, social policies to help uh, help those who have been affected by the crisis, etc. So it is a progressive. It is definitely progressive legislation. Yes, it's it's not small. Of course, it's an it's ambitious, um, but it's not a whole sort of transformation of the you know, economy. And so it's not, um, actually, it's not actually meant to uh, take the country towards a net zero course. What's interesting is actually ahead of the legislative elections in April, President Moon actually did mention the, the Green New Deal as well as the carbon neutrality, a net zero pledge quite early on. But when the Green New Deal was passed in July, it didn't include the net zero uh, element in it. Um, it was the net zero announcement came much later in October, fall, actually after uh, China and Japan had made that announcement. So maybe there was, you know, some international pressure for that to happen. So yes, you, you can say, you can sort of make the argument and it's ambitious. It's definitely, the language is very evocative, obviously, of, you know, a new deal similar, similar to, the, to the new deal in the U.S. Uh, following the Great Depression. But it is a, you know, it, it might fall a little more in, uh, on the side of repackaging of a lot of existing priorities rather than uh, something very ambitious and, and new. Uh, but having said that, of course, the net zero pledge is ambitious and, and new. Um, and as I mentioned before, I think the, the political situation, funnily enough, in Korea is probably uh, is probably less friendly to this. So, you know, there's a tendency if, you know, presidential terms in Korea are only one term. So President Moon is, is um, you know, gone after, after his term expires, I think, in about two years or so. And usually with a new administration coming in, it tends to reverse a lot of the policies that the previous administration had. So right now, the opposition in Korea is actually quite opposed to the, to the net zero pledge and to a lot of the climate policies that were put in place in the Moon administration. And a lot of the, the reason for that is because of the economy. So there is this perception, of course, that these things will be negative for a lot of the companies or impact the economy. So we'll see. So I think this is actually a big, great uncertainty about whether Korea will, will continue with a net zero pledge. Uh, so it could be of the three countries that we're talking about, it could be the one that actually reverses this. Um, but of course, I think the, in terms of what, what it does in, um, in terms of renewable energy and other te- technologies and things like that, and also, also spurring companies to make similar pledges, I think that would probably continue, even if uh, on the policy side, there might be some reversal in the future. Well, that political dynamic certainly sounds familiar to our American listeners and uh, 
and certainly in Australian politics as well. Moving south a little bit to, to think about Southeast Asia, I noted in your podcast with, with Sarah last year, you, you know, you spoke a lot about the global financing of coal in, in Southeast Asia and noted that Vietnam and Indonesia had the two largest pipelines of coal projects after China and India uh, at the time. And you, you predicted that we were starting to see the end of coal in, in Southeast Asia. So I'm wondering a year later, how do you, how do you feel about that prediction? You know, how has COVID-19 and recovery efforts sort of shifted that trajectory, um, you know, if at all? Yeah, I, I, think, um, I think still okay to stand by my prediction. Of course, it's, you know, as I said at the, at the top of the podcast, you know, a lot has changed since that, that recording. Uh, we did it a year ago. So first thing I'll say is Southeast Asia has been, been really negatively impacted by COVID um, and definitely not out of the woods. So the decline of tourism and, and, and also exports has really negatively impacted economies of a lot of the countries in Southeast Asia. And, you know, even though it's probably not as uh, hard hit as, let's say, the, the U.S. Um, with regards to COVID cases and lockdowns, it probably will take a bit longer to get out of the woods because, again, tourism might take a bit longer to recover. Uh, vaccines are not as available as, as they are in, in the U.S. right now, um, even though it's hard to get one in the U.S., I'm sure. But they haven't really started vaccinating people in Southeast Asia and in a lot of countries. So I think it will take a bit longer for, for that to get back to normal. In terms of coal, I, I think it's um, interesting that for instance, if you look at Vietnam, um, there's still a, quite a pipeline of coal power plants out there. But we're seeing that a lot of them are having trouble finding financing. Um, so clearly, a lot of the, the Western uh, banks or development agencies have pulled out of financing any coal-fired power plants in countries like Vietnam or Indonesia. Uh, you know, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean institutions were the ones that were primarily providing the financing. but as you know, all three have made net zero pledges. So uh, there is that expectation that those days are, are numbered uh, as well. And, and certainly for some projects, this has uh, slowed down quite a bit. So I think it's actually going to be really challenging for these countries to build. It's not to say not any coal power plants will be built. Some of them, I'm sure, will, will get through, but it's going to be increasingly harder and harder. And, and that's certainly the direction that that's moving. I think in its absence, what's interesting is that um, a lot of these countries have, especially Vietnam, for instance, are building more renewable energy like solar. And also another aspect is that uh, a lot of uh, energy companies from Europe and also Japan as well are now looking at natural gas or LNG gas plants in these countries instead of coal. So there is already that shift uh, that's starting to take place. Uh, it's certainly certainly going to be an, an interesting development to watch. Thinking about COVID-19 impacts, uh, I'm not sure if you've had a chance to look at the IEA just released their India Energy Outlook um, for 2021. And I was sort of blown away when I saw that they project energy demand to fall from a 50% increase between 2019 and 2030 to more like a 25 to 35% range. Um, suggesting that COVID-19 will leave scars that last, you know, a decade or more uh, in India. So just wondering if, you know, how much you've thought about how we should expect the, the pandemic to, to play out on the trajectory of, of India's energy, whether that's uh, on the demand side or, or, of course, on the supply side as well. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I sort of need to take a deeper look at that. It was definitely an interesting statistic that came out from, from that uh, IEA report. 
Look, I, I think the view is that India has also been uh, pr pretty hard hit with uh, COVID and will take a bit longer uh, for recovery. And generally, I think if you look at GDP and, and um, investment, building of new power plants or renewable power plants in India in 2020, a lot of that has slowed down and has been, has been impacted. And the government uh, recently releasing a new budget is trying to sort of address that and move forward. But, it, but it's going to be really challenging, uh, I think, uh, for India. Not sure if we entirely agree with uh, that it's going to be that far negative in terms of energy demand. But certainly, I think it, we probably agree with the point that uh, it, you know, the adverse impacts from, from COVID and the lockdowns and the disruption uh, is obviously having an effect. I think one other thing I'll say about India is that you know, there's a big question about whether India will also make some sort of net zero announcement ahead of COP26, or what kind of climate announcement it will make. There is definitely uh, some level of pressure uh, for India to, to say something. Um, and certainly, again, you know, that the chatter, if you will, is, in India is that, you know, should we go for a net zero pledge or should we go for something ambitious? I think for now, our expectation, again, it's, you know, it's always guesswork when it comes to policy, but our expectation is it may announce some sort of near zero uh, goal be, you know, before COP26. In other words, yes, it needs to say some, it needs to have some position or say something about decarbonization, but net zero or, or sort of net zero by 2050 probably is a, is a step too far at the moment. So we're probably not going to expect that. Um, still, we'll, we'll watch that very closely. I think, you know, India is under pressure to say something about climate. Well, even if it doesn't announce a net zero goal, uh, I think it's safe to say it's made some pretty ambitious pledges as it is. Of course, it, uh, its target of 175 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2022 and a staggering 450 gigawatts by 2030. Uh, I think last time I checked, capacity today is, is about 90 gigawatts. So there's there's a lot of work work to be done. And and one of the, the challenges that you've noted in the past is, is reform of um, India's power distribution companies, or, or DISCOMs as, as they're called, uh, which are under severe financial distress and uh, have sort of created real problems in the, in the power market there. And you mentioned the Indian budget, and my understanding is they've just uh, sort of announced a revamped reform uh, plan for the, these ailing DISCOMs. And I'm wondering if you've had a chance to review this proposal and perhaps if you can provide a bit of context for our, for our listeners on, you know, what's in it and perhaps what its, its chances of success look like? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think so on, on targets, right, I, I think India does tend to announce fairly ambitious targets and then sort of uh, sets the bar very high and, and tries to achieve it, right? So kind of the opposite approach that China takes, which is tries to set the bar low and over overshoots. So I think those high, you know, I, I think those high targets, first of all, that India announces is significant. It means that it is aspiration, and even if it doesn't quite get there, it is still a, a signal for uh, for the industry and, and in terms of where where people want things uh, to go. So I think that that is a that is very uh, important. In terms of the discoms, yes, I, I think uh, you know we talked about that a bit in the past, and it is an ongoing uh, challenge. It's not made any sort of easier at the moment with, uh, obviously, the economic disruptions from, from COVID. So I think on that one, I'm probably a little less optimistic, um, although our India team may, may disagree, but I'm probably a little bit less optimistic about whether the, the new budget or, or the measures right now can address that. I think, I think we still have uh, a bit of ways to go to address the 
um, you know, some of the fundamental uh, problems or challenges that the, the DISCOMs are facing. Of course, it's not all even. Some are better than others. I think one more positive note on India is that it, it is quite attractive to foreign investment. Um, we've seen a few of these announcements, I think, in the last couple of months uh, of companies across you know, Southeast Asia or Europe essentially signing deals. Uh, I think there was one with uh, Adani, if I remember correctly, that are pretty ambitious um, in terms of building out energy infrastructure or building renewable energy. Um, so despite you know, a lot of the challenge, this challenging market environment in India right now, uh, it is a very open market and it is trying to attract foreign investment. And I think that's you know, part of the solution potentially in terms of how it can scale up uh, renewable energy build you know, and, and other sort of clean technologies. You know, I certainly agree. I just uh, published a piece making a, a similar case that this is something the Biden administration should really be focusing on, is um, uh, helping Modi, the Modi government uh, attract foreign investment into its, its renewable energy sector. Uh, but it w- would be remiss of me to, to not take this chance to ask you a little bit about uh, Australia. And uh, in particular, I think it's interesting... You know, it's a conservative government that that's you know ha- has a well-earned reputation as a bit of a climate laggard, and yet at the same time has come out with some some fairly interesting proposals, particularly around hydrogen and uh, and around um, carbon capture and sequestration. And there's at least a rhetorical effort to position Australia as uh, a renewable energy superpower. You know, and and providing both clean hydrogen and and potentially solar power, you know, through underwater cables to the, you know, the Southeast Asian region. So just would love your take on how successful you expect these, these efforts to be and, and what progress, you know, is actually being, uh, being made as opposed to sort of um, political promises from, uh, from a sort of government under pressure. Yeah, luckily I read your piece on Australia, so I think you're the, you're the expert on this. Um, but it was really interesting. I, I, really, I really enjoyed it. Uh, some of the work that you've written. Um, and, and actually, I, I think it's, um, and frankly, yeah, it, I think it's a very interesting perspective in the sense that I think often we hear about the, the politics of uh, climate in Australia, you know, being a mirror of, the, of what's happening in the U.S. Uh, and obviously with the conservative government, uh, it's, it's been, you know, quite hostile. Some of the statements have been quite hostile to climate policy, but at the same time, I, th- I think as you rightly pointed out, um, in terms of policy, some, there's been some pretty pro-climate uh, things that actually have been done uh, in Australia that you know, hasn't happened in the U.S., for instance. So I think it's worth sort of having a more balanced view of that. Um, so, so I think that's a really good point that, that you bring up. Clearly, I think Australia will be under some pressure uh, politically to, to announce either emissions reduction target or net zero, right? Now, it's, now that essentially you have... Uh, Europe and and then its major trading partners, China, Japan, and Korea, and then potentially the Biden administration, all becoming more uh, either having announced an zero goal or about to become more ambitious on climate. It does sort of single Australia out in that regard. So I think it will be under some pressure to do that. With the point of hydrogen, I think it's a really good one. I, th- I think there's a very uh, strong argument that Australia has a very um, important role to play. Uh, in decarbonization in the future because it actually could be one of the lowest cost producers of hydrogen uh, in the world. Uh, simply has low cost renewable energy, so good resources, a lot of land, obviously, to, to build you know, large industrial size projects. Uh, so it definitely has that advantage. 
But I think what's a little bit less clear is that you know, when you start shipping that to other countries, the cost uh, calculation changes quite dramatically. So if you ship Australia-made uh, uh, hydrogen to Japan, for instance, the cost actually goes up. And there is debate still over whether it's cheaper to produce that hydrogen domestically in Japan. Um, many would argue it's not because of you know, land constraints, et cetera, in Japan, uh, a country like Japan or other parts of Asia. We sort of lean a little bit in the direction of that local production in, in the countries is probably a cheaper option. But of course, that comes with a whole host of uh, challenges as well. Ultimately, I think um, for Australia, you know, the net zero pledges, especially in Asia, is, is going to be problematic for Australia because that will mean that uh, a lot of its fossil fuel imp- uh, exports are going to be impacted. Of course, it won't happen today or tomorrow, but it will happen at, at some point in the future. But I think a similar sort of uncertainty about the future also hangs over the, uh, hydrogen projects. So while there is interest in investing in hydrogen, Projects, you know, I think there was an announcement of um, the Asian Renewable Energy Hub in, in Australia, for instance, which is basically a, um, a hub of, um, of projects that will use renewable energy to produce hydrogen and ship it over to Japan. Um, so I think there is a lot of these announcements, companies, state governments, etc., announcing them. But you have a serious sort of chicken and an egg problem at the moment. So if you, even if you were to produce all this hydrogen now, there really wouldn't be demand for it in, in Asia. But then again, if you wait for demand to happen, you know, it might be too late to, to, to make them. So I think without some level of coordination, it's, it's a little bit challenging initially to get that all kick-started. But having said that, I mean, the, the final thing I'll say is that uh, the, the interest in hydrogen has also grown a lot in the past year. And, and I think a lot of countries and companies recognize that it, it will have some role to play in the future in decarbonization. So in total now, you know, 13 countries have published hydrogen strategies, uh, just nine in the past year alone. So the interest level is definitely there. And I think it's going to be a multilateral effort if we were going to scale up a, a hydrogen uh, economy of any sort. So it would require a lot of countries to, to play a role in that for, for that to happen. Well, I, I could certainly talk to you about uh, the politics of Australian, uh, you know, climate legislation for, for another hour. But I, I think we've we've just about hit our limit and managed to, to conduct a pretty successful tour of, of the Asia Pacific region. So thanks again, Justin, for um, you know coming in virtually and, and speaking to us. And I can only hope that when you come back next year, fingers crossed, that we haven't had quite such a dramatic interlude, uh, you know, in the meantime. But Uh, Hopefully, you know, more net zero targets and and a successful COP26 under our belt. Thanks, Lachlan. Yeah, it was great to be here. Thanks for having me again. And and, uh, yeah, hopefully next year we'll have more good news to share on this. Thanks to Justin and Lachlan for this week's far-reaching discussion. Look for more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or find us at CSIS.org. You can always follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.